Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at Antidote Festival in 2019. Welcome to All About Women and welcome to this session, this first session of the day, Finding Your Voice. Uh, I'm Edwina Throsby and I'm the Head of Talks and Ideas here at the Sydney Opera House. And I am joined on stage by two women who definitely have voices. Um, Flex Mami is a DJ and a podcaster and a television host and an influencer (laughs) (laughs) and... um, and a professional haver of opinions, I saw on your website, which I think is fair. Um, Clementine Ford is a writer and, uh, and has written two books, Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys. Uh, she is also somebody who um, is very active in the public sphere in Australia and um, has a lot of opinions about a lot of things. <laughs> so I want this session today to be part kind of thematic analysis. Um, I think that there are some really interesting things to talk about, about, you know, the way that women use their voice publicly um, and the history of that and the way the restrictions and the opportunities around that. I also would like it to be a bit of a how-to session, you know? Like, like there are a lot of people, I think, who, um, you know, be they young or old, are still figuring out how to make their ideas heard. So it would be good if we could have some time today to actually think about practical ways that we can do this. Because as we know, speaking up in public is not that simple. There are so many reasons why we keep quiet. It is deep in our history. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that women weren't allowed to express opinions that were um, in defiance of their husbands. It wasn't much longer before that that some women were punished with a scold's bridle, you know, a a literal iron mask with something that held tongues down, which was used as a torture device when women got too ahead of themselves or spoke out too loudly. We're acculturated as girls from before we can even talk that when we talk, it needs to be in a certain way and that it needs to be respectful and that good girls keep quiet and don't make a fuss. And we have this reinforced right through our childhoods. We're rewarded for being orderly. You know, our male relatives are allowed to scream and shout and boys will be boys, but the girls have to sit and play nicely. And this goes into overdrive in our teens, where we actually often find really, really genuine and deep social ramifications for speaking out. By the time we've grown up, it's habit. We all know when to shut up and we all know when it's safe to talk. And it's a really, really hard habit to break, no matter how mindful you are, no matter how feminist you are, no matter how desperately you want to talk. And in many places, it's actually genuinely dangerous to speak up. The ramifications aren't social, they're legal, or they're, you know, so deeply social that, that, that they lead to torture or incarceration. Uh, Clementine, in your book, Fight Like a Girl, you wrote, nothing hurts more than realising you've been complicit in your own silence and nothing feels better than unleashing your voice. So, I'd like to oh, start... That's a good line, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can really write. I'm a bloody good writer. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, when you were, you know, a young writer that was coming out, what was it that made you... What was it that enabled you to unleash the voice in the first place? 
It's interesting because uh, I'm so far beyond being scared of having an opinion that someone doesn't like now that it's, it seems quite shocking to me when young women write to me and they say, I, I just don't know how to speak up or, um, you know, I see you and other women doing it and I, and I want to do it too, but I feel scared because it's, it just feels so far away from me now. But I guess I got my first newspaper column when I was um, 26 or 27, I think. And the, I just had just enough of a combination of youthful bravado and... Hubris. <laughs> and also wanting to go out and, like, I probably did want to be a bit controversial, you know, because it was in Adelaide as well, it was the Sunday Mail, so I was like, oh, I'm going to go in and I'm going to fan some flames. <laughs> and so I wrote the, the, I think the second or third column that I wrote, I remember actually, I used to have this sidebar and I'd do, like, my column and then I would do these three things that had, you know, bothered me that week or whatever. And I deliberately put something in there about abortion because I knew then that I would be, you know, I'd, I'd have all these emails sent to me from people who were disapproving because then I was setting it up for the following mm. week's column where I could write a whole piece So you just invited material and yeah, it all yeah. came in. Yeah, so smart. it is, if people are like, you're being deliberately inflammatory. No, never, me. <laughs> um, and so I wrote this piece about... Um, and I still think it's actually a really important piece because certainly at that time, you know, in 2007 in Adelaide, it, it, would st it was still rare to see something like this. And I wrote about how I'd had two abortions in the previous three years and how I didn't regret them. And, you know, because you always heard the narrative mm. that, um, oh, it was the most difficult decision of my life and I still think about it every day. And, you know, this sort of self-flagellation that women are forced mm. into whenever we dare to, you know, actually use the reproductive health care that is our right. Um, and so I wrote this piece about how I had, you know, regrets about it and I, I felt really proud of myself for making the decision. And of course they published it under Clementine Ford reveals her two no guilt, no shame abortions. Hectic. And it was just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails and comments. The most, I mean, talk, talk about a baptism of fire. Um, the things that people were saying to me, you know, one of my favourite comments now I'm amazed that she could get pregnant once, let alone twice, that everyone, that anyone would have sex with her because she's uglier than a dead dog on the side of the road. And I was like, that's so specific. <laughs> I ha you have to have respect for an insult that is that specific. And so I kind of like was just besieged by all of, all of the abuse that we know that women receive online, I kind of had in a week. And it might have bothered me had it just been people responding to me talking about, you know... Your feelings. Whatever. But because I, I felt so passionately and strongly about this particular political issue, I was able to kind of erect this force field around me where I was like, I know that I'm right and I know that the reason that you're saying these things is because you're scared of what I'm saying. And it kind of, I guess, in a weird way, fortified me for the years to come. <laughs> So, you know, go out and write something completely inflammatory and just weather the storm. <laughs> Wait for it to happen. Flex, for you it wasn't so much finding your voice as kind of being thrust into having a voice. You know, you were kind of building, working not necessarily in commentary, but you had like this growing social media following and, you know, were, were saying stuff. How did that sort of process 
come out come about for you? Like like was it like one day you woke up and thought, oh wow, people are listening to me and I have a responsibility <laughs> here, or was it kind of slower than that? How how was the process for you? It was a lot slower. I'd say around like 2014, 2015. There was a lot of conversation about appropriation and being a person of colour, not just like an individual person. And I found that being a person on the internet who was also black, I was awarded this kind of um, understanding that I would know about black issues and even further of that, issues of all marginalised communities. So I was also finding that people didn't have access to their own fellow black person, so I was that person. Is this good? Is this bad? Should I wear those braids? Can I tan? And I didn't know and also didn't care. <laughs> and so what happened with that was I would just screen a lot of these messages and then I would Google, like, what was the internet saying? What was BuzzFeed saying? What, you know, what was, you know, Teen Vogue saying? What, what was about rating? You know, yeah, yeah of yeah. course, because I was like, I don't really know. And, of course, these conversations about appropriation were from a very American lens as well. So being African and Australian, it didn't really hit my orbit because I didn't know any other black people either that weren't American, I mean, that were American. So anyway, um, so I would Google and just reappropriate what the internet was saying. Like, in this context, it could be bad, but in this context, it could be good, and you might need permission from someone from that community to say it's okay, and it was unrealistic. And then I started to see, um, on the flip side, people creating narratives about how all black people feel. And I didn't feel that way. And so suddenly I was like, well, should I figure out how I feel and develop mm, nuance? <laughs> and that was difficult because I wasn't given time. I was, there was this presumption that I should know and that I need to answer now. And you know, then it was individuals and then publications and then broadcasters and it was say something and say something and say it quickly because we're all doing the bad thing and if you don't tell us then we'll never know how to be better. And so <laughs> there was a lot of pressure and you know, I was saying earlier to you on the phone, I don't think I would have stepped into that role unless it was forced upon me because I felt like I had an invisibility shield. Like I didn't have to say anything because everybody else was saying something, right? Apparently not because I soon found out if you didn't fill the gaps of that narrative, somebody else would do it for you and it'd be probably incorrect and lack tact. Did that happen? Of course, and I, <laughs> and I found it even personally, I didn't realise that would happen until it happened with my own personal brand. Like, I wasn't speaking for myself, and so the narrative of, you know, um, being this, like, black female musician, like, she writes in all capitals to take up space, and it's like, it's not that deep. You know, or, you know, she's hyper-aware of what it's like to not be seen, so she wears colour to stand out and make sure the oppressors see that she's coming. And it's like, again, like, not that I deep. Just, I just like bright blue. <laughs> exactly that. And so, you know, I would find that, you know, perhaps those narratives weren't necessarily damaging or completely demeaning, but what if it got to a point where they were and then I couldn't counter-attack it? So... But it also means that you don't ever get to just... Be. be a person, you, you always are being used by others to be a symbol and mm -hmm. to represent something that, you know, to be a political movement in and of yourself when yeah. maybe sometimes you just want to watch TV. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or want to be chill or want to be a bit sus or problematic and learn at my own pace. I feel like there's also that idea of, you know, we don't, we don't know things we don't know and so I don't want to be thrust into developing understanding that just isn't there. Like, if I, I don't know the bandwidth of what I don't know if I can't know it. Mm. So, there was also that. It's really hard when, um, and it happens with so many people, and we were just talking backstage about um, Jamila Jamil and the, the kind of expectations that people put on her. She's an actress who is um, an English actress and TV host who is really prominent online. For I mean, most of you probably know, but, um, but is really prominent online. And she's extremely physically beautiful um, and also brown. And she 
take stance on things like body positivity um, and there's, there's, she's controversial because people are like, you know, what do you know about not having a good body when you are like visibly amazingly beautiful? Mm. Um, then she's also a woman of colour, so yeah. she's got all of these, you know, all of these other elements of that she can answer to that mm. on. What I was going to say was that it's really, really hard when people, other people put someone on a pedestal and that person maybe doesn't want to be on a pedestal. Like, you might, mm. did I just say pedestal? You might not want to be on a pedestal. Um, <laughs> pedal really hard. <laughs> and the reason that you definitely don't want to be on a, ped on a, pedest on a pedal, <laughs> on a pedestal, <laughs> put up high, <Yeah. laughs> is because they're, all it takes is just one person looking for a crack in the pedestal yeah. <laughs> to knock you down. Yeah. And you didn't ask to be there. You didn't ask to be the representative for everybody. That's it. And I think it also speaks, in your case, Flex, to the ridiculous paucity of black voices in Australian media landscape, mm. you know? I mean, like, it's like, what are we going to do? You know, if, if, if you want a white voice, there are a million people you could call, but yeah. you become representative of a community in a way that you didn't seek and don't feel equipped for, really. Yeah. And again, it's all about lenses and perspective of experience. So I didn't necessarily grow up in an environment where I had other black narratives that were comparable to mine. So I was learning my blackness from American TV and then UK media and then my own culture and then through, like, an Australian-centric lens and a European lens and all these perceptions of how I should be how I should be, and then internalising things that I thought were inherently good or bad, which, again, feels bizarre, you know, like you start being uncomfortable with your hair and uncomfortable with the way you speak, uncomfortable with identifying as anything but. And I used to go out of my way to make sure people knew that I was Australian. Like, I was born here, you know, like, I'm not, like, black, black, I'm, like, super Australian. And even in that, like, where does that come from? And who does that, like, who feels comfortable with that? Mm. So what does speaking out actually mean? You know, like, what, what, what are we trying to do when we raise our voice? What's the goal here? <laughs> um, I mean, I really relate to what you're saying, what you were saying before about, like, sometimes it's not, it's just not that deep, mm. you know? Sometimes not everything that you do is done with the purpose of it being part of a political agenda or wanting to, you know, make a statement. Sometimes, sometimes you're just putting a post on Instagram, you know? Um, but I guess the things that I've become particularly known for speaking out about tend to be, you know, men's violence against women and sexism and rape culture and, and lately in the last few years, obviously, you know, um, toxic masculinity and changing the way that masculinity is conceived of in this country in particular. Um, and so I've, I speak about, out about things that I think are really important and that we need to keep talking about. Um, and that, you know, we're getting more and more voices addressing those issues. Um, but I suppose, I don't know, it's a difficult question to answer because I don't think that I sit down every day and think, right, what, what statement am I going to make today? What's my agenda? What's my agenda today? It's, it, it's a body. Because it's just my life now. Yeah. So I, I, that's my field of work. So that's the work that I do. And I think it's important too, probably, to, to acknowledge that um, there are different ways that you can speak out, you know, like there's this sort of idea that finding your voice is about standing up and kind of, you know, shaking your fist and yelling it out. But there are, you know, that's not for everyone and not everyone has the platforms on which to do that. So, and also, you know, if you wanted to really break it down, that's actually quite a patriarchal way of thinking about 
engagement with a public sphere, right? Yeah. So, so there are other ways, I think, of speaking. I don't know, have you found in your, in your work and mm -hmm. life I mean, I guess the point is to bridge the gap in understanding. We have so many presumptions about the way the world should work from a very literal lens. And, you know, we all exist in our own personal vacuums. And so it's kind of acknowledging that outside of this vacuum that I dwell in, my brain, my mind, there are other maybe contrasting narratives. I mean, but I also worry that because we're all made to be publishers, um, where a lot of us aren't carrying the duty of care or the weight of having a public opinion and what that means. I feel like for so long the narrative's been like, just say something, just say anything, just call somebody out. Do the work publicly so you, you're being acknowledged and then after that work gets done, what's the aftercare for the person you unduly called out without evidence or that narrative that you hadn't known of and now you've vilified someone publicly but now you're sorry, is there a public apology for that? So. I, I see the importance of encouraging people to say something, but there's also, should be an extra importance or understanding the responsibility of saying something and understanding nuance and critical thinking and even knowing that you can only be so objective within your lived experience and then acknowledging what your blind spots may be. Mm. It's always this idea that if you're going to say something, you've got to be true, right and correct. But you just have to acknowledge that you might not know everything. So before, it's like, instead of racing to speak, race to understand, like race to learn and then say something. I remember years ago, I was called out on Twitter for having said something that I actually didn't say. Helen Razor had said it. Mm. And this woman wrote this, you know, long Tumblr post about how I was like this awful problematic person because of this interaction that she'd said that I'd had with her. And I went back and I, I said, I knew, that, I knew that it wasn't me. And I went back and I searched and I found that the, twi uh, the Twitter conversation that she'd had with Helen. And I sent it to her and I said, look, could you just make a correction, please? Because this wasn't actually me. And when I first said that to her, she was like, I know, what, I know what happened. And I said, well, look, here's the conversation that you had. Could you please correct mm. it? And she refused to do it. So then I, I sort of said something publicly about how, you know, this is incorrect. This, this happened with Helen. And then she switched to say, oh, well, I just made this one mistake and now you're humiliating me online and how dare you. But the thing is, I mean, that was a pretty messy interaction. Yeah. But I also think that one of the problems when you're working in spaces like this is that there's a lot of hurt and trauma out there and there's an, a lot of legitimate trauma that causes people to behave in certain ways because they are operating in a space where they're not listened to and they're not heard. And you, you provide an easy access point for them to um, either, as someone to yell at or someone to, to ask to listen to them, and then they might have certain feelings about how quickly you respond or don't respond. And I think that that's kind of part of what fuels some of this anxiety online is that no one's going to go and yell at some like right wing liberal man on $450,000 a year about how they feel like the way that he lives his life is perpetuating their oppression. Right. Because he's not going to fucking listen to them. Right. You know? But someone who is ostensibly on their side mm. will create a space where they can be heard. And I think that that's somehow, like, when you see that people are kind of operating in the same spheres as you, it's easier to throw your anger at them. Um, and I understand the impetus for that. I understand the motivation, but I think that 
that whole sort of cancel culture rather than call-in culture. Rehabilitation culture. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> there are some people, I think, who... There's no purpose in wanting to change people's minds about issues or about the world if once they prove that they have had their mind changed, that you say, well, it's not fucking good enough. You know, you used to think this 10 years ago, so the fact that you've changed now will never erase that. Because what's the point of doing any of this work if we're actually not going to accept people who come along and, and allow themselves to be changed by it? And I think that's a really important thing to think about when we are talking about speaking out, because we're in a really kind of, I think, as so, so social media is now, what, like 15 years old, I guess, 10 years old? I don't know, my maths is terrible, but it's, like, young in terms of, like, the publishing industry, right? Adolescent. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that we're still really coming to terms with what that means in terms of public discourse and in terms of speaking out. And I think that the way that these kind of public disagreements play out are really instructive to that, because you're absolutely right. Those disagreements very rarely happen across this trench which has appeared, mm. right? Um, they, they, they tend to be between people who are, like, you know, broadly in the same hemisphere. It's like kind of, you know, Australia and New Zealand rather than, you know, Australia and North Korea. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Just spitballing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, but I think that this is one of the things that... Um, we talk about a lot is how to be respectful online and how to have respectful discourse. But as kind of online leaders who also have to deal with an epic amount of shit online, how do you sort of navigate those boundaries? And at what time do you kind of just go, oh, there is no room for respectful discourse now because I am done? Mm. I mean, it's tricky because I thought that the response to that would just be setting boundaries. But realistically, you're not interacting with the same people all the time. So any boundary that you would have set a few weeks ago is now moot because you're interacting with a new audience. The only way I found to responsibly um, provide people with their own autonomy is to have them ask each other. And so I have a podcast with my friend Bobo and, you know, we were the people who were answering everybody's personal queries. And I have just a, 10 minutes of your time for this really traumatic story. I hope you don't mind. And then we created a Facebook group and said, please direct all your queries to each other. And what you found is that it took ages to self-regulate because all this work people were doing was happening as I say, in a vacuum. They didn't know how to speak to each other. They didn't know how to mediate or anything. And so it, it became tricky because I was like, look at this environment. This is all a reflection of how you conduct yourself on the internet. And there is nothing I as an individual can really do on a scale that's going to, I guess, instruct mass um, consistent change. And so I remind my audience that I've, I'm pulling back because it's not realistic. I don't have the tools or the tact or the emotional bandwidth to know how to navigate each and every problem. And like you said earlier with someone like Jamila with a huge platform, the problem doesn't get easier. The expectations become more and more um, damaging. You know, I will never have um, the, the acumen to understand how to navigate every situation. And so it's reminding people that I'm not going to. <laughs> like, I've got to step back the whole way back. It's almost counterintuitive to create a platform for discussion and say, but I won't partake. Because, yeah. but realistically, what can I do? Mm. Because a lot of the interaction with people, with people who don't have profiles on the internet, people who do, is projecting onto you. Yeah. But I thought you were this way because, you know, you identify as this and you do this and you speak about this, so why aren't you talking about everything else? Like, I physically can't and fundamentally don't want to. 
And that's not a good enough answer for most people. Yeah, and with women in particular as well, there's a really finite period of time in which the public will love them, mm. you know? And once they get to that point where it flips, then all of a sudden that's when it's... I mean, it's all the sort of like internalised misogyny and patriarchal stuff about like, oh, well, she thinks she's so good and I'm just sick of seeing her face and... Mm. Um, gave you the right. Yeah, and also the more, I guess, the more platform someone... Again, going back to poor Jamila, if you really used her as an example today, but the, the bigger her platform becomes, the more boundaries she will have to put up around herself, the less accessible she'll become to people. And then what made people... Or what makes people like someone like that in the first place i.e. the accessibility, suddenly ceases to exist and then she's, perce she's perceived by a public that felt like they, they could reach out and touch her, that now she thinks she's better than them, even though that's actually not what's going on mm. in situations like that. It's, it's a very rational and reasonable self-preservation. But I just think that, that the, the way that the public, whoever it is and for whatever reason, ends up looking for a reason to kind of pull you down, particularly in Australia where mm. tall poppy is such a problem. Mm. I mean, what, what this, you know, raises is the question of how is speaking out, particularly in public, how is, how is that gendered? You know, like, like why is it different for women than for men? Mm. What do you think? Patriarchy. <laughs> I mean, it's for all the reasons we know, and then, and now that we know them, and now we know that we're existing in a society with that framework, we'll probably never not cease to exist. It's, it's tricky because we perpetuate that in so many ways. Like, I find that I have expectations of, you know, understanding from fellow women, and you know, maybe a misunderstanding from men, and so it's hard for me to kind of, you know, point fingers when I see how my biases come into play. Mm. Um, and even with the community that I've curated, like, it's just a bunch of women and, like, 3% men. Like, I am the problem. And the people who, who um, are in my space are also the problem. And it's so easy to put up blind spots to that. When you say you're the problem, what do you actually mean? Well, I, I guess that, like, when you... Existing on the internet and having this profile, there's so much work that I'm not doing because I'm not aware of it. And I don't know how... I can increase my understanding of things that I don't know are happening, right? And so it's easy to say that within this, within a room like this, where all women were doing, not all, sorry, people, um, when we're all people doing the work, there's work that we must be doing that we don't know of. So I feel like when people put a virtuous umbrella over things like this, it becomes part of the issue because it leaves very little room for being problematic or learning yeah. comfortably or open, you know? Or making a mistake in public. That's it. Or even, like I said, I don't want to be the... The, 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 the voice of a generation. Or the voice either. So even within that, like, you have a responsibility and you don't want to use it. Like, that is inherently problematic. And I'm quite comfortable with that. And that's what I mean by saying I am the problem. Like, within the work that we're doing, I can acknowledge that I'm not doing all that need to be done. Finding a voice is a tricky one. It's a lot of responsibility, and I don't think that it's fair to put that on everyone. If when, because also in that conversation, like finding your voice, it's not just for people who have voices like ours. It's mm. all of the voices, the voices that contradict our narrative and make us uncomfortable. And then what? Mm. Well, this is. I mean, we've been talking a lot about online um, voices because that's where you both, you know, yeah. exist a lot, and and also where I think you know public discourse has moved, um, by and large. But, you know, Lindy West, who was supposed to be here today and, and wasn't able to come, um, sadly, she quit Twitter 
because she just got so done with the trolls that she couldn't she couldn't mm. do that anymore. I mean, is there a point where the internet or where online platforms cease to be useful in these conversations, or is there a way you can bring it back? Do you think? I mean, how, I guess the question is: if you found your voice online, how do you get to control that narrative in a way that is productive and safe for you? And it's really hard to know what's going to happen because, as you said, you know, it's really it's ten years. I mean, in two thousand and ten, I think I had a round-edged phone, like <laughs> a round-edged iPhone. My uh, friend and I used to call them iPhone round. Um, and I didn't, I don't know, maybe I had an Instagram account, but I wouldn't have, it would definitely 10 years ago not have been being used the way that it is now. I think I remember in, it was what, like seven years ago or something, um, was it Lady Gaga, the first person to hit one million followers on Instagram. And of course now like, people have like 600 million followers or whatever. So it's, 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 either, it's either here to stay or it's a massive wave that's about to crash and people are going to pull back from it. I, I can't personally see Facebook really lasting all that much longer. Like I, We can only hope. Well, young people aren't really using Facebook as much as old people. Like, Facebook is a platform for our generation, <laughs> boomers and Generation X. Um, and Instagram is, you know has been massive, but now there's this thing called TikTok. What the fuck is that? Oh. <laughs> you know, TikTok. Um, so I think that... I think I had platforms. the most Generation X response to TikTok, actually, <laughs> which was to go on Facebook and say, does anybody know about TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, all of these new, this new technology and these new platforms will constantly be, uh, you know, being created and the, the system itself will re reinvent itself. Mm. But... I wonder whether or not one of the reasons why people are pulling back as well is because it doesn't... It provides you with all of this illusion of connection, but it's not actually real connection. The arguments that you have on Facebook make people feel agitated and distressed because there's no... Without that, I, would, I wouldn't say things... To, imagine we were enemies. Right. I wouldn't say to you, to your face, mm. what I could feel comfortable saying to you online. Absolutely. Um, and certainly the things that people send to us, they wouldn't... I mean, no one's ever come up to me on the street and said the things that they say to me online. So I feel like that all of that interaction is creating really toxic space for us to even be present in, you know? Um, that sort of low-level hum of anxiety that we must all be experiencing all the time. But that actually stops us from actually doing anything getting anything productive done. I mean, Flex and I were talking last night about Super Tuesday and I had seen um, a very good friend of mine who is a huge Bernie Sanders fan and we have a lot of disagreements about her take on some things. I'm not saying I don't like Bernie, but she took the stance yesterday on Facebook that Elizabeth Warren, who is terrible, should have dropped out ages ago because at this point she's just stealing votes from Bernie. And I was like, that's a really basic take and also Bernie didn't not beat Biden in Super Tuesday because Elizabeth Warren was in the right. Her minuscule number of delegates stole, stole them from him. The reason that he didn't win was because all of the young people that love Bernie, who share Bernie stuff online and who, you know, are rah-rah for Bernie online, didn't turn up to vote. Mm. And that's, that's the practical reality of it. So that's part of the problem as well, as I think, is that particularly in activism spaces is that we feel... 
there is a difference between... I don't think that all online activism is just clicktivism. Right. But there is this sense of productivity that happens when we yell at each other online and when we like quickly read the headline of an article and share it into our feed and no one's actually reading the article itself. <laughs> you know, and if, if we're at the basic problem where this groundswell of support for a, a person who wants to radically overhaul like a deeply oppressive capitalist system begins and ends with people yelling online but doesn't actually translate into them turning up to the voting booths, then all of this sort of... Um, all of this conversation that we appear to be having is actually just noise. Yeah, chatter. Mm. So how do, we, um, how do we find a way to kind of translate the kinds of conversations that I think, you know, in many cases are important to be having that are ha ha happening currently online? How do we bring it back into a kind of more tangible, in real life, like, how, how do we get the, the result? How do we turn the people out? What's, what, what's the flip there? I guess it's fundamentally acknowledging if you care or not. I think Sarah and I have had a great TED talk on the magic of not giving a bleep. And she, her theory is like you have a finite amount of bleeps to give. And so if you delude yourself into thinking you have more, then you've in a, in a bleep deficit and then you can't show up for what you really care about. That was <laughs> she, so PG. She'd love that. Uh. <laughs> I just, you know, sometimes I don't know. Um, so I think that's what's happening online where we've conflated progress with comfort. And so we do what feels good. The click felt good, the share felt good. And sadly having a difficult conversation with your, like, I don't know, xenophobic boss feels like a little bit hectic. And, like, and you actually has to like, share an article later on tonight. <laughs> yeah, but it has, has tangible impacts on your life. I mean, another thing that Flex and I were talking about last night was the, is the way that um, people use or people can use call-out culture to sort of project, not only project a political kind of image of themselves. Like a also, purity? Well, also to shield like themselves from... Signaling. I think it's to shield themselves from any from having to kind of engage with whatever privileges they may share with the person who's being called out, you know. So um, that sort of lateral... I'm not going to say lateral violence, but lateral call-outs. It feels good for me. If I'm, an, if I'm a white woman operating in a culture where I know that white feminism is being heavily critiqued, as it should be, but I feel a little bit uncomfortable about maybe where I sit within that and I'm worried that, that perhaps I'm complicit. My response to that is not going to be... Um, I'm, I'm not speaking about me, by the way. Um, hopefully. My <laughs> response to that is not going to be sitting there in my discomfort and interrogating my own thoughts and my own actions and how I might have an impact on other people. My response is actually going to be pointing the finger at every other person who I think might be like me mm. and creating a shield around myself that way because in, by doing that, I can indicate that I'm very critical of that behaviour and therefore I don't embody that behaviour. Mm. Um, and I just don't think that that's... I'm not saying that people shouldn't be called out, but I just don't think that when, when it's kind of... When that is a practice that is happening more and more, I just don't see where the productivity is and, like, how... Do, if we truly want to change the world that we live in... Mm. What purpose does that serve? Particularly if you're not, if you're not also doing the work of sitting there and thinking, like, in my in my most uncomfortable moments, how can I acknowledge that I'm also complicit in all of these oppressions? Sure, and I think conversations around exactly that are really inhibited by fear of being called out. 
Yeah. Because there's no infrastructure. Like, if I'm going to come up and say, I too, you know, did X, Y, Z in this environment, there's nobody to hold me and coddle me and walk me through, you know, that confession. It's pointing fingers. I thought you were different. I thought you were better. And so realistically, a lot of us don't have our best case scenario in mind. You know, we want everyone to be better, but we have to acknowledge that being better, you have to acknowledge all the crappy things you did before. Nobody wants to yeah. do that. I, the conversation is counterintuitive because though everybody should find their voice, we aren't all agents for change. No. And stepping into that role can cause more damage than, you know, the alternative. And the process of, yeah, you're right, the damage is real because the process of finding your voice means that you're going to stumble and mm-hmm. say terribly ignorant or harmful things. And it's, I guess it's part of that, as someone who's been called out a lot, fairly as well, and I, I probably haven't always responded in the best way to some of those call-outs because, look, it, it hurts. Like, it hurts to be called out. And we all have that initial... Every single human has that initial indignation... Defensiveness. Defensiveness yeah. because we don't want people to not like us. But if we can kind of... Again, like, going back to that idea of sitting in that discomfort, if we can sit in it and, and query what is it that I've done, why has this behaviour been harmful to people, how can I commit to learning and growing from it and also be okay if people are not okay with that, then that that actually does sort of like help to create change and I think also helps to mitigate some of those mistakes mm-hmm. in future. But the fact is that no one is no one finds their voice or is born into this world that we live in having a completely perfect political slate of ideas and understanding. And we've all And that's benefited. a shifting thing as well. Like this yeah. idea that you can be perfectly politically right is, is just bullshit, really. Mm. But we've also all benefited. Every one of those... Everyone, every single person who calls someone out online and or says something like, well, it's not, you know, like a white person who says to another white person who's asked a question about racism, oh, well, it's not my job to educate you, go and use Google, and it's, it's like, well, okay, it's, but it's not your job yeah. to educate that white person, but it might be my job to educate that white person based on what I've learned along the way too. You know, that's that sort of collaborative kind of mm. educational process where it's really, it's really um, disingenuous for, for some people who pretend or want to believe as if somehow all of the, like, super progressive thoughts that they have now have always... Came from the womb. Mm. But even framing it as, like... (laughs) I was born like this. It's just so naturally woke that, like... Which is tricky, because even, like, the way we frame it, like, it's not my job. And our relationship to work is never really great. So we're presuming there's labour, unduly labour and effort that I shouldn't have to do. And it's the contradiction of wanting to, you know operate, like, orbit these spaces as a community, but being so individually minded to a fault where, like, I would do it, but she's not going to call them out, so, like, let me mind my business. Which is also fair, because, again, there's nothing worse than someone stepping up, hoping that somebody else is going to pat them on the back for it. Yeah. You know, like, did you see how terribly racist that cop was? Like, I, I wasn't going to say anything, but you saw it, right? You know? <laughs> like, wow, people really treat you differently, because X, Y, Z, that must be hard. Onwards, you know, it's like, who's going to, like, what is that for? So I think it's also acknowledging that if you are going to step up and find your voice, what are you doing it for and what's your best case scenario? Do you really give bleeps or not? (laughs) And I think we haven't made enough room for those who really don't care. 
And I feel like I would prefer to have 20% of people who cared and were doing the work than 80% of people performing it yeah. for, you know, validation. I, one of the things that happened just a couple of years ago um, was that a whole bunch of people at the same time found their voice, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and hashtag that me too. And, and that actually, as we saw with the um, culmination of the Harvey Weinstein trial last week, actually did matter in the real world, you know, that that actually did shift something at that moment. But we're also already seeing a backlash. Um, what do you think is kind of next in this, um, in this sort of space? Do you think that Me Too is an ongoing project? Do you think that um, it has the backlash that is already happening around Me Too and the kind of silencing stuff that's been going on mm. is going to prevail? How, how do you think the next chapter of this whole mass movement of women speaking out mm. is going to play? Small question. Right, it could go either way. I mean, I feel like part of the disappointment about speaking out is that suddenly your whole identity is rooted in oppression and hardship, and it's hard to look at these people who have spoken out as powerful or brave, and suddenly they also become the receptacle to everybody else's hardship. Yep. Like, you've spoken out, and thank goodness, because now I can speak out because of you, and let's continue this back and forth, and suddenly 10,000 people want to speak to me, and then 100,000, and then a million, and it's all too much, and then suddenly within that conversation we turn the spotlight away from the perpetrator and it's like, well, what are we yeah. doing this for? Mm. So, I don't know. And, it, yeah, it's tricky because Harvey Weinstein, that, I mean, that was an unexpected, I have to say, mm. unexpected, because that's just how bloody cynical we've been... Be yeah, well, I mean, we've been trained pretty well. Yeah, but also well. Harvey Weinstein is one person who did incredibly terrible things to hundreds of women. Mm. But there are hundreds of thousands of men out there doing terribly bad things to a smaller group of women mm. who will never be yeah. pursued or prosecuted for it and who are, who are perpetrating violence in ways that is less... Um, I, I use this word deliberately because I think, you know, when, particularly when we're talking about rape culture and we're trying to make people who don't understand what rape culture actually is, mm. give them some kind of, like, complex understanding of it. That this idea that, like, rape is this, is this incredibly um, Hollywood version of what people want to imagine it and then everything else is just sex that she regretted. Mm. Um. When actually, like, the majority of sexual violence that's being perpetrated is very mundane. And when I, I say that word mundane deliberately because it is in people's minds, that's what makes it easy for them to go, well, that's not really assault because, it, you know, every single... Yeah, that happens so often. Mm. Yeah, but also, yeah. like, we all, everyone who's been kind of assaulted knows that in most... Well, for, for how to phrase this correctly, the, the majority of... Certainly the majority of stories that I've heard have been um, disclosed to me in a way that is very ordinary. Mm -hmm. It's an ordinary act... And that, I think, is what people really grapple with and really struggle with because it's easy to look at a monster like Harvey Weinstein and go, he's a monster, yeah. when actually these are not monsters that are perpetrating these crimes. They're ordinary people and they're ordinary people who have, in most cases, have family members who love them, community members who love them, and they don't, they don't want to believe that 
they've inflicted that the sort person of that they love is capable of perpetrating this trauma against another human. Also, like... And, that, and they don't want them to go to jail. Yeah. The political infrastructure around speaking out, like, there are so many gag laws within Australia where victims who want to speak out about what's happened to them are silenced, and those who share their story can also be prosecuted. So, yeah. you know, within this whole idea of sharing and finding your voice, there are so many barriers to entry. And then you have, you know, like, one of the most... Infuriating cases in recent years in Australia was the Luke Lazarus mm. trial, and it's not just that his conviction was overturned on appeal, although that, of course, is like mind blowing, but also the level of support that he, this privileged, wealthy young man, had in the courtroom. Mm. You know, and I know Saxon Mullins has been here before at um, All About Women, and she's just such an incredibly brave young woman, but then she becomes this figurehead as well for a movie yeah, that that's... She, didn't, she didn't ask to be. You know, and again, like we were talking backstage just before about um, all of the women that we can list just in Australia whose lives have been ended by violence, whether or not that is a combination of sexual violence or just physical homicide, just. That mm. to me, one of the, like, the greatest indignities that's been forced on those women is is not just the trauma and the horror of their deaths, but that forever, when their names are heard in the public consciousness, that that's how people yeah. remember them. Yeah. Um, we're going to open up for questions. There are microphones uh, up there and up there. Um, if you could make your way to the microphones to ask questions, that would be great. It is about finding your voice this session, so I would encourage you to find your voice quickly <laughs> and concisely. That was and, you know, nice. to the point question-framed way, that would be amazing. Um, are we ready to go? Microphone number two there, please. Hello. I wonder if you could give us some reflection on how we can help our young teenage daughters find their voice. And we've spoken a lot about social media and uh, the echo chamber of opinions that our young people... Arin, and I'm just wondering if you can reflect back a little bit to your pre-social media days when you were young teenagers and what was that burning spark for you? Well, I was a teenager who said that I believed in equality but I wouldn't call myself a feminist um, because I didn't have anyone around me educating me about feminism and I, I think that one of the things that I would have really benefited from was a lot of schools are doing this now but having like feminist clubs or... Um, Spaces in which girls, spaces created for girls and, in fact, anyone who, who wants to be kind of part of that project to come and, and talk and share their stories and in, in a space where, um, for me, when I first, like, cultivated a group of girlfriends at uni, because in high school I was like, I just get on better with boys. Because um, <laughs> I really, yeah, anyway... Patriarchy. Um, <laughs> but once I, once I was in this group of girlfriends at uni and we were all sort of studying gender studies and we were having these like incredibly earnest and wonderful conversations about gender equality, I realised that one of the best things about it was that I didn't have to explain any of my stories to them. I didn't have to justify mm. them. I didn't have to say, you know, like... I didn't have to gently walk them through what it was like to experience sexism the way that I so often still have to do, or I don't, I, I refuse to do it now, obviously, but 
the way a lot of women still feel like they have to do with men, just like gently kind of buffer them from the reality of the situation. So I think when, if you can get that happening for young girls at, a, at the earliest age possible, a space in which not only do they not have to explain their experiences, but where the validity of their experiences is, is reinforced to them so that they don't kind of enter into this process that so many of us have spent our lives in of being socially gaslit about what it means to be, you know, experience any form of discrimination, then I think that would be really helpful. Mm. Can I add on to that? Of course. Ooh. I think in addition to that, it's important to cultivate a strong belief system. And I feel as though a lot of us, because we've lived with our minds for so long, believe that we should have an innate understanding of what we think and why we think that, and we just don't. So if there's any avenues to encourage like objective critical thinking, like what you believe, why you believe it, and what to inform that belief. I know for a fact that I didn't understand that when I was 16 to 22, but <laughs> I'm sure if I had somebody to kind of hold my hand through that and almost force the notion that you, you think thoughts for a reason and they've been conditioned and programmed for a reason. And the sooner you figure out where that's come from, why that's happened, and if you identify with those thoughts, yep. the easier it'll be for you. I think that's kind of why it gets to be difficult as an adult. You're like, well, what can I think? I've never thought about it before. Why is it a big deal? And it's a huge deal. Mm. It's amazing how many adults just don't kind of interrogate their own thoughts, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but I get it because yeah. there's so much else happening. Like, who has the time? <laughs> Capitalism. <laughs> Microphone number one, please. Hi, um, my name's Carly. I have a question more about being in the workplace and working for myself, particularly in a male-dominated industry. I'm often the only female in a room. And my question was around any advice or how you have... Um, I guess, found your voice in those situations, what you would suggest for women who often find themselves in those situations, being talked over or having your ideas repeated just with different words, um, <laughs> sort of struggling better, to be... Better a, words, right? Better yeah. words, exactly. <laughs> just words so I understand it. Yeah. Right words. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't really know whether this is a good idea, but I'm just going to say it because, like, maybe it could work or maybe it can't, but just, just, just listen for a second, just a second. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's interesting because, uh, and you would get this as well, like one of the common questions that you receive if you have a, uh, if you work in this sort of public space is, you know, how do you deal with the backlash? And my response is always, it is so much easier for me to do my job every day, no matter what some fuckwits writing to me on Instagram, because I don't have to answer to a boss. <laughs> I don't have to go to a workplace where I'm surrounded by men who expect me to tolerate their, like, casual sexism day in and day out. And also, anyone who says something to me that I don't like, I can say exactly what I want in response to them and I don't have to worry about the consequences. So I really... Quit your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but it is true that more and more women, more and more women, the reason more and more women end up working for themselves is because then they can sort of excuse themselves from these scenarios. Um, but I guess one thing that I would, like a practical kind of, piece of advice is that there are, there are some mechanisms... Mechanism, why am I struggling to speak today? It's all the, all the wine last night. <laughs> there are some methods that you can use uh, that can, can be done in a gentle way so that if, you, if you're worried about backlash or consequences at work, you can kind of sidestep them. And one is that if someone says something that you find objectionable, you can ask them to repeat it 
and then ask them to repeat explain it. Explain it. Uh, ask them to I explain it, it or ask them to repeat it and ask them to repeat it twice. Because the first time you ask them to repeat it, they might just genuinely think that you're asking them, oh, you didn't hear it. And then you go, no, I'm sorry, I still didn't hear that. Can you say it again, please? And then the spotlight is shifted back onto them, away from you, and they have to sit in the discomfort, discomfort of what it is that they've said and how inappropriate it is. Or you can say, I don't get it. Can you yeah. explain that to me? Um, another one I like as well is like, oh... Sorry, I didn't hear that. I've just got a bit of sexism caught in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> That's bold. <laughs> and the thing is that, like, I mean, one of the unfortunate realities is that if you are the first person in your space to be using your voice or to be speaking up against injustice or discrimination... There is no easy fix. I can't tell you how to do that in a way that's not going to feel uncomfortable for you. Yeah. Because that work always initially feels uncomfortable. But what ends up happening the more and more you do it is that there's someone, there's at least one man that you work with who also doesn't like what he's hearing or the behaviour that he's seeing, but he doesn't feel confident enough to speak up against it. Um, and he will see you doing it and that will give... Or another woman who will see you doing it and then that will give them the confidence to join you. And then if, you know, this is... And actually, to, to any of the men in the room, this is what... This is why we need you to be the ones stepping up and doing this work first, even though it feels uncomfortable for you, because it lessens the impact to the women that you're working with or that you're in social situations with. But it also then models to the other men that they can join you. Um, so it's a slow kind of process, I think, but that... You don't change any... You can't change the surface area of a lake by just gently, like, pressing a pebble into the outside edge of it. You know, you have to, like, Oof. throw a big rock into the centre. Yeah. And you have to be... Unfortunately, like, part of that finding your voice is, for some people, is being willing to be the big rock. Mm -hmm. um, we're hurtling towards the end of the session, um, so I'll just take those final two questions extremely quickly. And, um, yeah, so micro number two and then the woman behind you. Just on that, I'm, I'm a pebble, so I do love to create waves and I've been had some successes and I continue to do it much to the mirth of friends, family and anybody who knows me. I write to the newspaper, I write to the local council, I write to the body corporate. <laughs> Writing is my, my strength. However, it's usually about other issues, other people, disadvantage, disability, school, education, curriculum, you name it. With the coming of the Me Too movement, like many other of women, we reflected on our history of, with men over many years. I'm in my 60s. Oh, God. And, of course, it brought much to the surface. Where I'd been living for some almost 30 years, uh, a resident there had been um, making unwanted comments, touches, etc., over a number of years. Which, did I speak up about that? No, I parked it like I did all the others. And then Me Too came along, my mother died, and there was a freedom that came with that. So, I went to the police, very kind, I must say. I spoke to the desk duty sergeant, I spoke to detectives, I made a report. And I said, I wanted, they asked me at the time, do you want to follow this up? And I said, not at the moment, but I want it on record, which it is. I spoke to three different solicitors, I also had counselling, one intermittent and one I, I went and applied for, um, what do you call it, victims of crime counselling, 
which I've just finished 28 sessions. Now, in, to all of those people, the police, the solicitors and the councillors, my question was and still is, what can I do? I would like to have my day in court with that man, but I don't remember the date and I have no witnesses. Mm. And each and every one of them, and I'm not lying, has said to me, the best thing you can do is move. Move from my home on the water in a home unit where I've been for 28 years, I was told to move. And the situation, because I did then start to take some legal um, stand in that letters went to this man about keep away from me, refrain from speaking, touching, etc., totally over his head. And um, it so became an ugly environment. I had to move and I had to move fast. And so I'm now in a new location. Mm -hmm. This, it's so unfair, what you've just described. I've even just said to the, the councillor on the last session, I still want to have my day in court. Mainly, my, one of my issues was about when I left, the, other, the young women there, what's, you know, this is a guy who gets drunk and is very unpleasant, but I wasn't able to tell other people. So in that situation where you're up against a completely intractable legal system that doesn't, that's kind of trained not to believe or to be sceptical and, and, and has a sort of requirement of proof that you can't provide, mm. um, I mean, what, what, what do you do for yourself and, and how, do you, how, do you, how do you manage that, do you think? And that's a really big question. I don't know that we're... I don't we're... know that there's... I mean, there's definitely no easy answer to that mm. and that is just indicative of how unjust the system is. I mean, you could come to the session with Chanel Miller this afternoon because she has, has gone up against, you know, all of this and, and it's been I mean, incredibly tough for her. To, to sort of, I know that we're at the end of the session, but there's a, there's a disconnect between, and for me personally as well, living in a system in which I don't think that um, the prison system is... I don't think that we should be celebrating and lauding the prison system. But then how do you deal with the hundreds and thousands and millions of victims or survivors who also have had no acknowledgement mm. or recognition mm. of what's been done to them. And that's, yeah, it's a, it's a much bigger question than can be answered in negative time yeah. on Yeah, I mean, stage, maybe it's also a matter of just all being here for each other as well, you know, and being there for the young women that you describe. Or you could kill him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to have to move on. I'm, I'm, can I just I'm say so... one thing, though? It's... The media and the Me Too focused on famous people. People have all, it seems to me, everybody's forgotten about the man upstairs, the man that you met at the shop the other day. The well, that's because it's, it's convenient to deflect you know? it to the big names because then we can forget that actually the normal people walk among us and right. are that's perpetrating exactly right. behind closed doors every day. I really hope that things, you know, start feeling better for you. Yeah. Um, final question of the, of the morning. I'm going to be super, super quick. Um, just wanted to thank you for sharing. I didn't recall your name or I'm not sure if you said it. And I'd love to have a couple with you after this because I've got about 150 stories that are similar um, and one recent experience. But besides that, I just had a question literally for the room. If anyone had read The Right to Speak by Patty Rosenberg? Patsy Rosenberg? No, I haven't. Highly recommend. It literally gives you tools and teaches you how to find your voice and use your voice and 
Great. How to challenge. And I just think it would be really useful. In Thank right you. to speak by Patsy Rosenberg. That's a very good note to end on. It's put it on your reading list, Thank people. You. Thank you so much for coming today. It's been a really good discussion. Oh, Thank you. Oh. Oh, I'm going to get in such trouble. Very, very quick. That's all right. I, I was trying to signal. To I'm sorry. Us. Like, I need to ask a question. Thank you very much for this. Our session, and I'm really glad that I came, and thank you for sharing your stories. Um, my question, or maybe it might end up being just a comment for us to kind of think through um, as we digest what we heard today, is potentially, um, I think, um, Edwina, you asked a really lovely question, how is speaking out gendered? But in my head, I immediately thought, and how is it raised mm -hmm. as well? Yeah. Because um, one of the things that I find in Australia, being a woman of color who's a migrant, um, is that I do have a voice, but it's, uh, who's not only a woman of color, have a voice, but I'm also of a certain age. Mm -hmm. And so um, I find that in Australia, I'm often kind of spoken of as a woman, but I'm not really just a woman. I'm a woman of color, and I cannot separate my blackness from my um, womanhood and my blackness is specifically African. And so like I have those identities like written on my body and also like I embody that. Um, and so it's very difficult to be in spaces where we're just talking about women because some of the, um, and, I'm, and this, I'm not saying this wrong with that, anything wrong with that, I'm just saying like, how can we create spaces in Australia where I feel comfortable speaking about my intersectionalities in ways that I don't feel kind of wounded when I try to kind of say, hang on, I'm not just a woman, I'm a woman of color, and that means something um, about the ways that in which through, um, that I move through the world, um, Australian space. Um, so I, I don't know, my question is about how can we also create spaces where those voices, um, women like myself, I don't think I, I need to find my voice because I think I already have it. I just don't think there's spaces in Australia that I feel culturally and racially comfortable to express that voice. So how can we deal with that genuinely as feminists in Australia, as women? Can, can I tell can you about a collective that's just been started in Bankstown? It's called mm -hmm. We Are The Mainstream and it's been started by women of colour. It's by women of colour to give platforms to women of colour mm -hmm. to speak about all of these issues in a space. I think it's a space essentially what you're mm. saying you're looking for. Um, mm. Just as a, as a tip for you to, right. to look at it. Um, Lex, would you like the final word on that? I mean, I'm resigned to the fact. I try so hard to make sure that my narrative is understood and I'm misunderstood daily. <laughs> so, like, looking for that space, um, for me, feels not necessarily unrealistic, but just being in spaces where um, I can communicate my experience and my identity as articulately as possible, and I'm still, you know, relegated to just this one or just this one. Because, you know, being uh, black but being born here, it's like, but you might not be able to speak on that experience, so probably not for this panel. Or, you know, perhaps having more, being expected to have more understanding than I do. I think it's not a question for me. It's a question for people who aren't black or aren't right. migrants, aren't people of colour. Like, do you recognise your blind spots when you're engaging with people who don't look like you? Do you recognise your expectations of what their narrative should be like because they're black or because they're, you know, of a different minority? And probably not, because realistically... If your access to ethnicity is from... or to people of colour is from a very, like, 
Hollywood lens or, you know, a lens of oppression or a lens of marginalisation, then I get that it isn't the most easiest thing to understand. Mm. And then you have people like me where you're like, well, are you really marginalised? You're on the stage talking to people yeah. about your experience. Mm. Like, you're not like the other one, so what can you say about it? Mm. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I think these are bigger questions than we can answer in negative ten minutes. No, we're in so, negative. Um, <laughs> we're so in thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> thank you again, everybody. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.